0: to the NBA Deep Dives podcast. I'm your host, Nick Agar-Johnson. Today, we're going to do a little bit of a special episode. Instead of doing a deep dive on an NBA team, we're going to do a deep dive on the NBA as a whole and go through some award picks for the season. I'm here with JC Fisher and Evan Damerell. So JC, how are you doing?
1: I'm doing great. Finally stopped raining out here in California, so things are looking up.
0: And Evan, how about you? Things are pretty great here too. We finally got some snow
2: back in Northeast Ohio, and of course everyone forgot how to drive during that, but other than that, things have been
0: grand. So one award has already passed, just quite recently in fact, and that was the All-Star roster. There were a few debates about who should have started. Maybe Russell Westbrook should have started instead of Steph Curry, but The more important discussion comes when you're talking about the people who didn't make the all-star team at all. Let's just go really quickly through our all-star snubs. So I think we're going to do one each. Mine is Chris Paul. I know he's hurt, and I know he wasn't going to play in the game, but his play over the first part of the season, I think earned him the right to at least be named to the All-Star team. And that way, you know, hey, you get to put another person in the game anyway because you get to name his injury replacement. But I think his play over the first half of the year really earned him the honor of being selected.
1: I don't necessarily disagree with you at all. I think Chris Paul's probably still the best point guard in the league and one of the all-time greats. He was playing like it. He was leading the Clippers, and they've been significantly worse with him out. So no, no disagreement here.
2: No, I totally agree on the Chris Paul thing. And then you were talking about a possible replacement, and I guess another stump for me probably would have been Mike Conley. Even though the uh, guard spot, especially in the Western Conference, was crowded, I don't know, this felt like it'd be Mike Conley's year finally. And especially after that max contract he signed, he definitely has backed it up with his play lately on both the offensive and defensive side of the floor. And yeah, just, I just thought it got snubbed. It's kind of unfortunate, but it is what it is at this point.
1: So, who do you think Conley should be replacing? I mean, who's on the team now that you would replace?
2: I have to. I mean, honestly, it's a solid selection for the West when I look at it. But probably the weakest player out of all the picks is maybe Clay Thompson for me, just because Clay has the benefit of playing for the best team in the league. Um, it's pretty similar to last year when the Atlanta Hawks entire starting roster, one Eastern Conference player of the month, and it's just like, if you're playing for a good team, yeah, you can be awarded for it, but maybe there's just better players that are out there at
0: this moment in time, and I think Conley's definitely one of those players. I think one of the other major issues with having not named Chris Paul to the team and then finding an injury replacement for him is we got DeAndre Jordan picked over Rudy Gobert, who I think has been better than DeAndre on both ends of the floor this year. And granted, maybe the coaches didn't want to have two Utah players in Gordon Hayward and Gobert on the team without anybody on the Clippers. But I feel like naming Chris Paul to the team and then replacing him with, say, Gobert or Conley would have mitigated that particular issue because DeAndre is a great player and he's really stepped it up on defense, especially over the past couple of years. But I think Gobert's just been better.
1: Yeah. Gobert was my number one snub. I think in the West, it's tough to say that he has been anything but the best defensive center in the league and he's got solid offensive numbers in Utah. They suffer when he's off the floor on both ends. And so Nate Duncan actually had an interesting stat earlier this week. Gobert is defending almost the most shots at the rim in the entire league, and he is holding the opposing players to a 41% shooting percentage on those shots, which is the lowest in the league. So not only is he defending the best, he's doing it the most often as well.
0: All right, let's move on to the MVP discussion. So... I'm going to name my top three, and then each of you can name your top three, and we have a couple of disagreements, so I think those will be interesting to discuss once we get the names out there. So, my top three in order, James Harden, Russell Westbrook, LeBron James. Evan? Actually, mine are identical to yours with James Harden,
2: Russell Westbrook, and then LeBron James rounding out the three. And what about you, JC?
1: I've got LeBron James as my top, and then roughly the same guys, Harden second, and Westbrook coming in third, although it was a late, late decision by me to add in Westbrook over Durant and Curry.
0: So let's start at the top, which is, JC, you had LeBron James number one, and I think the only reason, the only reasons rather, that I didn't have him number one, A, his defense has been lacking this year, and granted, Harden and Westbrook aren't exactly the world's best defenders. But B, and more to the point, I think any year in this decade other than the last two, LeBron James wins the MVP. But given the way that the Rockets are playing this year and the fact that Russell Westbrook is somehow still averaging a triple-double, I think it's hard to pick LeBron over those two. And I think the thing that gets left out is... Prior to the start of the season, the Rockets were projected at 43 and a half wins, and they are blowing past that. And I think you really have to attribute that to James Harden and Mike D'Antoni exceeding all possible expectations. And he's averaging 28, 8, and 11 and a half. And given that the Rockets are third in the West behind two almost generationally talented teams in Golden State and San Antonio. I have to give him credit over LeBron. I mean, the Rockets actually have a higher winning percentage than the Cavaliers right now. And I think that should matter.
1: Yeah, that's certainly a valid point. I would say I personally don't value the narrative as much in the MVP conversation. Sure, they've exceeded expectations, but that really just means our expectations were wrong. That doesn't necessarily mean that Harden's been the most valuable guy. I obviously think he's been excellent and near the top. I have him number two on my list. But it comes down to one question for me when guys are this close, and that's, if I asked you who you would draft first, if we just had a free-for-all, build an NBA team from scratch for one season, who would you take first? and I'd take LeBron, and I think that means he's the most valuable guy. He's the best player in the league. The best player in the league provides the most value to me. If I was going to pick a guy, I'd pick LeBron James.
0: That's a fair argument. I think my only issue with that is that the MVP is a regular season award, and if I'm drafting first in a free-for-all draft, I'm taking LeBron, but in terms of play during the regular season, I know that, well, I guess maybe I don't know, but I'm pretty certain that LeBron is the best player in the league. And when the Cavs get into April and May and June, he will show once again that he's the best player in the league. But at the end of the day, the MVP is a regular season award. And James Harden is having a spectacular regular season. And LeBron, while still having a spectacular regular season, I don't think has meant as much to his team this year as James Harden has.
1: So I'm pulling up the net rating on off right now, just to make sure I have my numbers right. But with James Harden on the court, the Rockets are a net rating of plus 6.5. And with James Harden off the court, their net rating is still plus 1.8. When LeBron James is on the court, the Cavaliers are plus 6.8 per 100 possessions, which is what net rating is and minus 5.4 without him, which is a massive swing in the on-off metrics. Russell Westbrook has a similarly massive swing. That's why I have him in my top three, even though I think he's truly becoming a stat-hunting legend. I think a lot of his triple-double averaging is kind of empty, but you cannot deny that the on-off-court impact of those two guys is incredible. Yeah,
2: I do agree that if you were to build a team today, like just fresh random pick players, um you definitely take LeBron because he he's the Magic Johnson of our generation, that he makes everyone around him better because he's a willing and active open passer and everything else and he can rebound, he can defend, and he can score at will, but like Nick said, he's obviously doing what he does every year, which is people like to pawn as Lacoste and everything, where he just kind of goes through the motions and conserves his energy and then activates Zero Dark Thirty as he so puts it on Twitter right around the playoff time every year, and I don't know. It's just maybe it's a little bit of fatigue, too, and maybe LeBron's been ruffling a few feathers with the media lately, too. It's just his negative comments, which is fine. I mean, Hey, the guy's been pretty squeaky clean for 14 years. He's allowed to voice his mind after a while. And it's no offense to Chuck or anything, but um, it's just that and the couple of the fact that I feel maybe some people are going to have some voter fatigue, especially with Steph Curry. And the fact that even though the Warriors are breaking all these records, um, you have a player like James Harden, who's just been off the charts lately. In terms of just his scoring output and his playmaking ability and the fact that he's definitely been the catalyst and the reason why the Rockets have from definitely what people expected to be, just an average or an above average team to one of the probably, without a doubt, the top three teams in the Western Conference. And that's why I give it to him. And then I just have Westbrook at second because I do agree with PJC that he definitely does pad his stats a lot. He... Like, snag every rebound he can, but at the same time, the one who runs... I mean, he is the team, like you have said, and it's just... I don't know, like, just the fact that you're averaging a triple-double alone is just incredible in itself, and if he keeps it up and doesn't tire himself out, which doesn't seem likely since the guy's just a non-stop energizer bunny, it's just, like, that's why I have him in
0: second right now on my spot for MVP pick. So, JC, going back to those on-off numbers that you mentioned... While those are definitely telling, I think it's also worth noting that those numbers are affected by the guys that are backing up Harden and LeBron. And James Harden's backup is, for the most part, Eric Gordon, who we're going to discuss later when we get to Sixth Man. And LeBron's backups are Richard Jefferson and Iman Shumpert. So on the one hand, the difference between the on-off is notable, for sure. But that's also, I think, affected by who the guys behind them are and who the Rockets are going to have on the floor when they've taken James Harden off is going to be either Eric Gordon or maybe Patrick Beverly, but generally players that are more effective than Richard Jefferson and Iman Jumper.
1: Yeah, that's a totally fair criticism. I think it's not necessarily a huge differential given that sure, when LeBron sits, Richard Jefferson comes on, but the Cavaliers still have Kevin Love and Kyrie Irving on the court at that time. So yeah, the teams are constructed a little differently. I think the magnitude of the difference still accounts for that a little bit. Even if you want to say it, it minimizes that to some extent, I think there's still a difference there that is meaningful.
0: All right, let's move on to talking about the defensive player of the year. My top three are in order, Draymond Green, Rudy Gobert. And Marcusol, but an honorable mention to the one, the only, the process, Joel Embiid. I had a similar at least for the top three picks for the defensive player of the year. I have
2: Draymond at number one, Gobert at number two, and then Kawhi Leonard for me at number three. And I do have to give a shout out as well to the process because he's just been incredible in his limited
0: spurs play this year. All right, JC, who you got?
1: I had the same three guys as Evan, although I have Rudy Gobert coming in first, Draymond Green a relatively close second, and Kawhi Leonard. There hasn't been nearly as much buzz about Kawhi Leonard as I think there should be, so I'm glad I wasn't the only one that threw him on this list.
0: Let's start with the Draymond versus Rudy debate, because that sort of ruled the top two picks for all three of us. I was very, very close between... Draymond and Rudy Gobert, but the deciding factor for me is that right now the Golden State Warriors have the best defensive rating in the NBA and they traded away their best rim protector, Andrew Bogut, in the offseason. And I don't think there's any way that they could be the number one defense right now without Draymond Green being who he is, being a six, seven, 250-ish pound forward who not only can guard one through five, but does on a semi-regular basis. And especially looking at the Anthony Davis strip and the block on Kent Bazemore, he has won them, legitimately won them a couple of games with clutch defensive plays. And I think Rudy Gobert has been incredibly valuable to the Jazz this season, especially on the defensive end but their low opponent point per game number is held down by the fact that they play at by far the slowest pace in the league. So for me, it's Draymond by a hair.
1: Yeah, Draymond definitely has a great story, as you mentioned, with some of those end of game strips and blocks. I want to ask How much of the Golden State Warriors defense is also due to the best defensive season of Kevin Durant's life, basically? It's not like he played defense like this in AAU ball or at Texas, and certainly not at Oklahoma City, up until the Western Conference semifinals last year. Durant is on fire defensively for the Golden State Warriors with, by far, a career high in blocks per game and block percentage, so depending on how you want to factor in minutes there. He's got his best defensive rebounding percentage of his career. He's all over the place on defense. And I think that's a factor as well to have a nice seven footer back there. You say they trade away their best rim protector. They still have another guy who's protecting the rim, so to speak, alongside Draymond. Which isn't to say that Draymond Green isn't a valuable defender. I have him as the second best defender in the NBA. But Rudy Gobert plays a position that has far more impact on defense. And if I was trying to build a defense, I would start with a guy who can captain that defense from the anchor spot, who can protect the rim, who can sag back or switch out as needed, and who can really be my keystone.
2: Yeah, I can see where you're coming from, at least with the uh Gobert point. He is a defensive keystone for Utah, and he definitely protects the rim. And um, it's a shame, because I wish more people would pay attention to Utah, because, I mean, yeah, Gordon Hayward's great, and it's great that he got the uh, all-star bid and everything, but Gobert's also has been, if not one of the best players for Utah this year, and he's been key in the fact that they have such a great defense. But like you also said, I'm just giving the nod to Draymond, number one, is because as much as most teams and fans hate him, if you're not a Golden State fan, the dude just flat out plays with his heart on his sleeve, and he plays hard every single night, and the fact that Durant is definitely stepping up in the number one defense Golden State is rolling out right now, but it definitely gives him a little bit of a sense of security knowing that he has a seven-foot small forward uh, helping him lock down defense with him, and it's just, it's just been incredible to watch, because Draymond may not put up the flashiest numbers at times, but he is the driving force in the number one defense in Golden State, to say the least.
1: Where do you think Rudy Gobert ranks all-time for the Jazz, just as a random aside out of curiosity? Is he a top 10 Utah Jazz player ever at this point?
2: I don't want to say. I mean, he definitely could play into that spot, but it's just, he has had such a young career right now that I don't want to anoint him as one of the top 10 Jazz players of all time because, I mean, they did have – they've had great players like Stockton and Malone. Darren Williams was great for them in his heyday. Um, You have, I mean, Andre Karolanko, too, like players like that back in the day. Then you have players like now, like Hayward and everything else. It's just Utah has always been a solid basketball team. They've always drafted well. They've always picked good talent, and they've always built around it. But I could definitely say towards the end of his career, if Gobert plays it out in Utah – and doesn't pull an Ennis Canter and give the cold shoulder to them on the way out. I definitely could see him playing his way into the top 10 spot for the Jazz as a top 10 player all time for them.
0: I totally agree with Evan. I don't think he's played enough yet to be in that top 10 status, just because the Jazz were a perennial playoff team and finals contender for so long. But I think he's definitely on track. So let's talk about the number three spot in this. Both of you had Kawhi Leonard, I had Marcus Ole, and I think the main reason that I didn't have Kawhi Leonard on there was after I read Matt Moore's piece about Kawhi Leonard's defense, it sort of changed my opinion a little bit in that I at least understood why his on off court defensive numbers were not particularly great, but Goodness, it's hard to discount just how consistently he neutralizes the best player on the opposing team. And it was really tough for me, and I think the reason that I went with Marcus Gasol in the end is that the Grizzlies have had so many injuries this year— and yet they still have one of the best defenses in the league. And for a while there, it was just Marcus putting them on his back. Honestly, on both ends, but particularly on the defensive end, keeping them afloat.
2: Uh, yeah, I can see what you mean. Obviously, Marcus all has been great, and he has obviously just been a solid player throughout his entire career, especially since he's played with Memphis his entire career. And that's a team that's always been notorious for grit and grind, and tough defense, and not high-scoring or exciting affairs, obviously. I don't know, just under Fizdale this year, they're getting a bit more potent offensively, and it's easier to watch that go to the wayside on the defensive side of the ball, at least with Gasol and everything else, because he's also such a premier threat on the offensive side of the ball as well, As you can put his defense to the wayside, and with Kawhi, at least, is just—he's—he's he's a freak. Like, there's no one else to describe it. He's just—he's a special player. He can literally lock down anyone, your best player. Um, when he, like, when you look at LeBron, who's JC's um MVP pick for this year, um, that's one of the few players that I don't have any doubt in my mind when I watch. If you put Kawhi Leonard on LeBron, he's going to make give LeBron the fits for the entire game. It's and it's. I don't know, because that's a player to me that seems near unstoppable, or you try your hardest to defend him and hopefully contain him, but it's easier said than done with a a once-in-a-millennium-type player like LeBron, but then you have a player like Kawhi who just gets under his skin and just locks him down. I can't explain it. It's incredible.
0: All right, let's move into the all-NBA team discussion. So let's just get started with the first team. I had Russell Westbrook and James Harden as the guards. I think that's pretty easy. I had LeBron James and Kevin Durant as the forwards, also pretty easy. And as a Kings fan, this hurts me to say, but I have to put Anthony Davis in as the center. He's now played more at the center than power forward this year, and he's put up some incredible numbers. He's been more efficient on offense than Cousins has. He's been better on defense, and even though it hurts me to say I have to put Anthony Davis in over to Marcus Cousins as first team center?
2: For me, for first
0: team at least, I have
2: Russell Westbrook and James Harden as my guard positions, which are also my top two picks for MVP. And then at forward, both forward positions, I have LeBron, James, and Kevin Durant, um, Also, obviously also pretty safe picks. And I did you if solid as a Kings fan, and just in my honest opinion, uh, I have DeMarcus Cousins as the best for the center position right now. And as great as Anthony Davis has played, I just think by and far, DeMarcus is still and has been the best center in the league for a while now. And as poorly as Sacramento shows, record-wise at least, it's pretty hard to ignore the fact that they have an incredible player in Cousins. And I mean, these individual rewards are definitely maybe something to help well his temper when he doesn't make the playoffs for another year.
1: Yeah I have the exact same first team as you did Nick and I think we're about to have a very interesting conversation as to why DeMarcus Cousins should be first team or second team or no team at all.
0: Yeah let's let's go right into that. JC you didn't have him at all which I'll I'll look past how personally offended I am by that (laughs) but I guess my question for you is, I could see, obviously, since I didn't put him on the first team, I could see why you wouldn't want him on the first team. I could see even why you might not want to have him on the second team, where you could say Marcus Sol is leading a playoff team, he should be there, where you could say Rudy Gobert has been incredible defensively and very efficient offensively, and I could see why you could put Rudy Gobert there, but the fact that you don't have him even as the third team center, I think, really surprises me. Why do you why do you hate DeMarcus Cousins so much? Like what did he do? You do?
1: <laughs> so, it's nothing against DeMarcus Cousins personally. I actually have been a big Boogie fan for a long time. It's just that when I look at the results this year and I look at the body of work that he's put into the league, it's really hard for me to look at somebody who doesn't really seem to be able to have that big an impact on winning. Somebody who at the center position, the team gets better at defense when you leave the floor. So it's not even that, you know, Cousins is backed up or surrounded by guys who aren't that good, because when he's not on the floor, they should be even worse then, right? But he goes from a 110 defensive rating on the floor to the team with a 107 defensive rating off the floor. And sure, their net rating suffers because he is offensively a savant of sorts at the center position, having developed a fairly reliable three-point shot at this point, but... If you add to that all of his off-the-court shenanigans, and I mean, even for me, the -the off-the-court stuff is not that big a deal, but the on-court antics, the number of times that in one game watching at the new Golden 1 Center, Cousins was hanging out on the floor, throwing his hands up, talking to the refs, letting the Pacers back into the game, which they led by 20 points or so at half, and eventually blowing that lead and letting Indiana come back and take the victory on a play where... Cousins maybe gets fouled, maybe doesn't, but decides to stay back and yell at the refs while Indiana plays 5-on-4, gets a basket to go ahead by 4, and the game's never in doubt for the next 30 seconds when the Kings could have got a stop and had a chance, and I just think that happens too consistently to reward him with an all-NBA bid.
2: Well, I can see how that's like a fair point point. everything. Um, DeMarcus is definitely the king of, no time of their king, haha. <laughs> Uh, negative body language. He definitely shows it, and I think at this point he has a reputation for being a player who's pretty verbal when he's displeased with the call, and at this point, refs have just known to either tee him up and throw him out, or just ignore him and let him have his temper tantrum while the rest of the Sacramento players drop back on defense, but when he's on, he's on, and the fact that he's become such a, I mean, not He's not a game breaking three point shooter, but the fact that he's added a three point shot to his arsenal and the fact that he's hitting it at a more consistent clip this season definitely adds to his threat. Um, I mean, granted, Davis does shoot threes as well under Gentry's system, but I, I don't know. It's just, DeMarcus just to me is like he accomplishes something new every year in spite of the fact how poorly the Kings have shafted him over the years in terms of putting talent around him.
0: Let me just put some stats out there on DeMarcus before I let this drop. So, he is shooting 37.6% from 3 on almost 5 attempts per game. He is second on the team in assists, point .1 behind Ty Lawson, who's nominally the best passer on the team. He is second on the team in steals, point .1 behind Rudy Gay, who's now out for the rest of the season. He is leading the team in blocks by a wide wide margin. And he is one of the best offensive players in the league, much less just centers. And his defense does leave a lot to be desired. And I think that's particularly harmful, given that he is a center, but just his incredible impact on the offensive end. And I think that, to me, just signifies that he at least is one of the best Two or three centers in the league. Whether you have him as the best is a different matter, but yeah, I guess it's more like I could see why you wouldn't have him first or second, but I think he's been more impactful than Rudy Gobert. But let's move on to the second team where I think we're going to have a lot more differences than on the first team. So I had Steph Curry and Kyle Lowry as my guards. I had Kawhi Leonard and Giannis as my forwards, and I put DeMarcus in at center on the second team.
1: You're not going to get much disagreement from me again, oddly enough. I have Gobert as my center, so Davis first team, Gobert second team, and no cousins still. So for my second team spots,
2: I have Steph Curry and Kyrie Irving for my guard positions, Kawhi Leonard and Anthony Davis for my forward positions, and then I have Marcus Basol at center for me.
1: So what made you leave off Giannis? Uh I have Giannis
2: on my third team and it's just the fact that as great as Giannis has played, um the Bucks have come back down to earth the past few games and just it's tough. I mean, it's great that he made his first All-Star game ever, but he's got to go up against players like LeBron and Durant and Leonard and even Draymond too. If Draymond somehow sneaks into the second team just from defensive ability and the fact that he's a catalyst for uh the state—it's definitely tough. I mean, not tough. I should say, uh, Giannis is definitely deserving of a second team. If he gets it, I'd be more than happy to say he got it. I'm a big Giannis fanboy. Um, before he was the Greek freak, I used to call him the alphabet because um, whenever I because I bought a Bucks Giannis jersey when he was first drafted, and people always say, "Oh, well, how do you spell that?" And I said, "Oh, it's the alphabet." But um, no, um, the alphabet is definitely deserving of a second team. But I have him on third team for me personally, just because. There's so many good players at every position that it's definitely hard to say, okay, how do I rank them? And I just personally think Kawhi is just the better player. And then Giannis right now, especially when you look at San Antonio, who's by and far the second-best team in the league, and Kawhi's definitely been one of the main reasons why they're at that position right now.
0: Maybe the other reason you have Giannis on the third team is because you've got Anthony Davis as a forward rather than a center. I guess that's... Yeah, that's a that's an interesting debate right there, whether he gets listed as forward or center, because on the one hand, he has been a power forward for basically the rest of his career besides this year. But on the other hand, he has been playing a lot, a lot of center, especially recently. And I think that also shook up my rankings. But the other difference between your second team and JC's in mind was that you had Kyrie Irving on the second team, I didn't have Kyrie at all. And maybe there's something that I'm missing. But I think what it came down to for my third team was deciding between Isaiah Thomas and Kyrie Irving. And they're both horrendous defensively. And I think Isaiah has been better on offense. But why did you have Kyrie on the second team? I might be in the minority
2: here. And it's just the fact that I honestly believe Kyrie is the best point guard in the Eastern Conference. He might not be a true point guard, by the fact that he has the virtue of playing with LeBron, who's more of a playmaker than he is, but um, he's slightly increased his assist numbers on the year. Um, he's having a career year in shooting percentage, and the fact that his point totals have gone up in um, career average at least 3.2 points. And um, you mentioned before, like earlier on, that uh, DeMarcus is one of those players that can just go off for an insane stat total every night. Uh, Kyrie's just one of those players, too, to me, and so is Isaiah, of course, but um, I just have a slight preference right now to Isaiah just from the fact that Kyrie's playing on the best team in the Eastern Conference and probably the third-best team in the NBA right now. Um That's also, I mean, you can debate Houston in that spot as well, but that's just splitting hairs, but... um Cleveland does definitely struggle for a while but Boston and, and Toronto as well have all struggled too but Cleveland still has that comfortable lead on everybody else in the Eastern Conference at least between the first and the second season and honestly it's just like um the old saying that there's certain season in life it's uh death taxes and the Spurs winning at least 50 games and making the playoffs um, you can also tack on LeBron making the NBA Finals for however many years it's been now and it's just Kyrie gets the virtue of playing for in the best team in the Eastern Conference right now, and the fact that um, he's just putting up such better numbers lately. And that's just why I think he gets a slight edge, because defensively, like you said, he and Isaiah are horrendous, but I just think he has a slight edge right now on Isaiah, just from record.
0: I guess then the other question is... Given their defensive struggles, you said you thought Kyrie is the best point guard in the East. So I guess that means you also have to discuss Kyle Lowry and John Wall, who, unlike Thomas and Kyrie, are at least decent defenders. I think Kyle Lowry is one of the best defensive guards in the league. I think John Wall has at times been one of the best defensive guards in the league and is certainly doing better on that end this season than he did last year. So, I guess, for you, is it just Kyrie's nuclear ability that sort of has you vaulting him into the second team?
2: Yeah, it's his nuclear ability, and with that nuclear ability, he can just take over games. Like, LeBron, you can expect a consistent 26-7-7 and 7 from him, but Kyrie it can be a quiet 20 points, or some nights, like, against New Orleans, even though they lost the other night, he put up a stat total of 49 points, of mediocre four assists and two rebounds, but just the fact that he's just such a nuclear scorer and can go off at any time, it's just, I look at that and the fact that Cleveland is still treading the water defensively despite his defensive weakness, that it puts him above Kyle Lowry as well in terms of the best point guard in the East. And I've been arguing that even before LeBron came back. I just said Kyrie has the potential to be in the conversation with best point guard in the East and the way that he's played at least the last two seasons for me, especially after coming back that terrible injury in the NBA Finals two years ago. um, It's just been crazy to watch how incredible he's played lately.
0: All right, let's move on to the third team. So, as I said, I have Isaiah Thomas and John Wall as the guards. And then at forward, I have Paul George and Jimmy Butler. And then at center, I had Marcus All. For me, I had...
2: Kyle Lowry and Isaiah Thomas at my guard spots, and then for forwards, I had Giannis Adenakumpo and Paul George actually instead of love for me personally, and then I have Gobert rounding out the center spot for third team.
1: JC? So down to my third team, I've got Isaiah Thomas leading the Celtics, DeMar DeRozan rounding out both Toronto guards making at least one team, Uh, Gordon Hayward and Jimmy Butler at the forward spots. And I decided to put Joel Embiid as my third-team center, uh, just making it over Gasol and DeMarcus Cousins. The The biggest beef I have with, with your list, Nick, is where is Rudy Gobert?
0: He's below Mark Gasol, DeMarcus Cousins, and Anthony Davis.
1: <laughs> it's tough for me to see Rudy Gobert left off that list when he is near the top of the league in offensive rating. He leads the league in defensive rating. These are per basketball reference, by the way. And he's one of only two guys in the top 10 in both offensive win shares and defensive win shares. That's him and Kevin Durant, who, by the way, we haven't discussed Durant much. He leads the league in win shares. He's killing it on offense. He's having the best defensive season of his career. I might have to be revisiting the MVP discussion when we do this again at the end of the year and see just where Kevin Durant stacks up. But, The main point being Rudy Gobert has been incredible for the Utah Jazz. And yeah, it's a small market, and yeah, it's not that big from the media, but I think he absolutely is deserving of a bid on one of your first three teams.
0: Yeah, he was honestly my hardest omission from the All NBA teams. I really wasn't sure whether to put him or Marcus All as my last center. And I think I ended up going with Gasol just because he does a lot more on offense, and he's somehow shooting forty-one percent from three-point range on like a decent number of attempts, and is still playing incredible defense. But I don't want to denigrate Rudy Gobert by any means. He's had an incredible season. He's so much better on offense this year than he ever has been, and that was that was a tough choice, and. I think the other really tough choice I had to make was with another player on the Utah Jazz, so I guess I'm just, you know, hating on the Jazz today. But deciding between Paul George and Gordon Hayward was quite difficult, and I think I ended up going with Paul George just because he has so much less help than Gordon Hayward. And the Pacers are sixth seed in the playoffs right now, somehow, despite Paul George and Miles Turner being their only consistent players, although Jeff Teague has been surprisingly good at times, and also a complete non-factor on defense at times as well. But yeah, I think those are the two hardest choices for me, leaving off Gobert in favor of Marcus Lull and putting Paul George over Gordon Hayward.
2: I can definitely see where you're coming from, though, with Paul George. Like you said, he doesn't have a lot of help like Hayward does in Utah, and Indiana's still fighting, despite the fact that they, in my opinion, made a terrible decision in letting go of their prior coach in Vogel, and um, bringing in their what-news coach, and um, just the fact that there's been so much turnover, and Indiana's always identified as a defensive team, and they're switching over to a lot more of a high-offensively oriented team. Paul George has just been dragging. It's almost like Kobe with Kwame. when Kwame Brown was a center, it just seems like Paul George is going to drag Indiana to playoffs, whether the rest of the team likes it or not.
0: All right, let's move on to the all-rookie team. And we're going to do only the first team. And we're not going to do rookie of the year because I think that is the easiest award to decide in any time in the last 10 years. It is Joel Embiid by such a massive margin that I really don't think it's worth discussing. But I think All-Rookie First Team is a lot more fun of a discussion. So I have Joel Embiid, obviously. I have Malcolm Brogdon. I have Darius Saric. I have Buddy Heald. And... Demontis Sabonis. And important to note with the rookie teams, it's not by position like the all NBA teams, so you can throw whoever you want on there. I actually ended up going with two guards, two forwards and a center, but position doesn't matter for these. My all rookie first team I have for me is Joel Embiid, Malcolm Brogdon.
2: I'm gonna leave the third pick for last just to build some suspense, maybe. But then I have Buddy Guild, DeMontis Sabonis, and then for my final pick for all rookie team, um if Philadelphia allows Ben Simmons to come back and play after the All-Star break, um, the rookie class this year has been disappointing, to say the least, for the most part, besides Embiid and um, the great spurts from Brogdon. But it could be pretty easy for Ben Simmons to make the case, especially pairing him next to rookie of the year in Embiid, um, to put him in on the all-rookie first team. But if Ben Simmons doesn't end up coming back, um, I'm going to have to give the pick to Dario Sarge, which is just even better for Philadelphia because they just have such a plethora of young talent right now.
0: I mean, maybe it's just me, but come on. These are the mid-season awards. You can't put Ben Simmons on. There he hasn't even played. I'm just using speculation at this point.
2: I'm just I'm going off the very, very, very limited summer league highlights that I stayed up some nights to watch Ben Simmons pull off. and it's just I'm thinking he's going to be special if he's able to come back and come back healthy, of course, but Philadelphia likes to err on the side of the cautions when it comes to injuries, when you look at, especially Joel, like, if you look at a player like Joel who's now changing the uh, NBA one game at a time, whether it's on social media or on the floor, and um, I think if They allow Ben Simmons, and they believe he's fully recovered, to come back onto the floor and play. I think he can easily make the case to make the all-rookie team before the season is over.
0: And also, to be fair, unlike a lot of the rookies in this class, at least he hasn't actively hurt his team on the floor this season. That's true. JC, what about you?
1: This has been a tough rookie class to award, not because there are so many guys worthy of first team, but because it's hard to find guys worthy of first team. So for me, you've got Embiid, I say obviously. Malcolm Brogdon, although he's cooled down a little bit lately, has been excellent. Dario Saric makes the team as well, especially since the turnover to a new calendar year. And I struggled a little bit with the last two spots. Uh, I'm a University of Oklahoma grad myself, so Buddy Heald is deep in my heart, but I just haven't seen him do much other than shoot the three, and even that, he's had his ups and downs. So my team is rounded out by undrafted rookie free agent Dorian Finney-Smith from Dallas and Jamal Murray, who... Looks more explosive and more comfortable every time I turn on the Denver Nuggets for one reason or another. I think he's having a better and better year as the season goes on, and looks like he could be a gem that uh, some teams who passed on him might be regretting already.
2: I can definitely agree with Jamal Murray. Um, might seem a bit front runner of me since I do watch a lot of the Cavs since I live in Northeast Ohio, but I've always been a big Kentucky fan, and Jamal Murray was just lights out incredible last year. Kentucky, and um, he's definitely been great for Denver, but it's it just, it'll, like you said, if they're able to make some move, if Denver's able to make some moves and if they're able to dump off Jameer Nelson on, let's say, Cleveland or something who's, you know, desperate to look for a backup point guard because that's all LeBron's been talking about lately, um, it'll definitely give him more playtime, but um, Jamal has definitely been, Jamal Murray's definitely been great this year, to say the least.
0: I'm not sure Whether it says more about this rookie class that Dorian Finney-Smith made your team, JC, or whether it says more that I hear that and I'm not instantly against it. (laughs) The fact that it's reasonable, that I think it's very reasonable that you put an undrafted free agent rookie who can't shoot on your all-rookie first team, I think says everything you need to know about how the rookie class has played so far this season.
1: Yeah, down in Dallas, Finney-Smith has been enough of a revelation, perhaps a stretch of the use of the word there, that all those losses at the start of the season kept finding bright spots in the play, not just of Harrison Barnes, but of Dorian Finney-Smith as well. He's been excellent on defense, especially for a rookie, and his athleticism has helped in a number of ways when I watch their game, so I think he's earned my final spot.
0: All right, let's move on to the sixth man of the year. And I think this is another one where we're all going to be mostly in agreement. So my top three in order, Eric Gordon, Lou Williams, and one guy that neither of you had actually, Zach Randolph in third. For me, I had Eric
2: Gordon, Lou Williams, and then I did have Dennis Cantor in my third spot, but Cher had to get in the way of that. So right now it's just between Eric Gordon and Lou Williams, and honestly, it's just Eric Gordon for my overall pick for six man.
1: Yeah, I have Eric Gordon taking home the award as well. He's having what looks to me as far and away the best season of his career. I still have Enes second. It's a midseason award, and to this point in the season, I think his offensive rebounding, he's got highly skilled post moves all the time. I do think it's just too bad that his chair incident, shall we say, will keep him out of the spot by year's end, but he does get my fake midseason trophy there for second place six-man, and then I finally have Lou Williams there as well, just a perennial six-man of the year contender, constantly draws contact and fouls that I'm not really sure what people are thinking when they get into him because he's not going to shoot over you, but he gets the line, he gets to the basket, and he finds a way to make it work day in and day out.
0: Yeah, I think the only reason that I had Zach Randolph over Ennis Kanter, and I actually had Zach Randolph over Ennis Cantor before the chair punching incident, and I think the main reason for that is neither of them are particularly great on defense, but Zach Randolph is less terrible. And he also plays more power forward than Ennis does. So I think his defense overall is less harmful to the team. And the Grizzlies are also a better defensive team than the Thunders. So clearly they're working around Randolph's issues better. And their stats are very similar. Although Zach hasn't been as efficient as Ennis has. Again, he's putting up 14 and 8. He's actually handling a decent amount of the playmaking responsibilities for the second unit for the Grizzlies. And I just think his defensive struggles are less harmful to his team than Enes Cantris have been.
1: I think you make a lot of good points there. Uh, By the end of the season, Randolph probably has a chance to climb to second or even higher, especially when you add in the former starter who accepted selflessly this demotion in order to help better the team, which is an underrated aspect sometimes of when we look at this type of award.
2: Yeah, I definitely agree with JC on that one. Um it's huge for uh for a player who's been a starter for so many years to accept the fact that maybe his game is better off the bench for them and um he's definitely been huge for Memphis this year. So I could definitely see Randolph climbing up, especially with Ennis Kanter punching a chair and as the Thunder riders so annoying to talk about. Uh, thankfully the chair is unharmed though. So
0: Yeah, we glossed over it just because it's so obvious, I think that Eric Gordon is going to win this award. But he was leading the NBA in three pointers made for a while earlier in the season, like he was ahead of Steph Curry in three pointers made on the season, which is just absurd. And all of the potential that, you know, Caused him to be such a big piece in the Chris Paul trade. You know, he was a 22 point a game scorer before he got to New Orleans and was just hurt all the time. And I don't think it's discussed enough that Eric Gordon really, really didn't want to be in New Orleans and signed the offer sheet with Phoenix and basically begged New Orleans not to match it. And now he's on a team of his choosing, and he's playing alongside James Harden, and he just gets to shoot ridiculously open three-pointers all day long. And to his credit, he has been he has been nailing them, and he's been such a force for that team. Let's move on to coach of the year. And for me, I've got Mike D'Antoni, number one, Greg Popovich, number two, and Steve Kerr, at number three. I have the same exact list as you, Nick, with D'Antoni, and then Pop, and then Kerr.
1: I also have a different order with Steve Kerr and then D'Antoni and then Popovich. So same guys, but mixing it up a little bit.
2: If you don't mind me asking what exactly made you want to pick Kerr over D'Antoni this year?
1: Well, there are a few things. Uh, Number one, the Warriors are winning more, and I think that matters. Certainly they have more talent, but wins matter. He has done a masterful job of integrating Kevin Durant into a team that while Steph Curry is the selfless star that everybody loves also has Draymond Green looking for shots also has Klay Thompson looking for shots and some of those egos aren't as small as I think we all like to think about sometimes Curry's system and his culture have been incredible they've been taking care of everybody the team seems happy they all sing kumbaya together they love to go on their little retreats and just hang out grab dinner all of that i think it plays into a lot of their success and is kind of a stepped-up version of what Popovich has always done, Uh, down at third on the list as one of the perennial contenders for the award. D'Antoni, D'Antoni's been excellent. I mean, it's not like Kerr is ahead of him by a wide margin for me, but it's incredible looking back now how New York and L.A. front offices let their situations change their opinion of a guy who was always thought of as an offensive maestro and an excellent coach, And then a team like New York took away all of his tools to run, gave him a bogged down system, and then wondered why things didn't work and had to let him go. Uh, Looking back now, it's hard to say D'Antoni ever lost his ability, but was just looking to build the right team again.
0: And I don't think there has been a more perfect fit of player and coach since Red Auerbach and Bill Russell (laughs) throwback. I don't think there's been a more perfect fit between coach and player than giving Mike D'Antoni James Harden. And the reason I had D'Antoni and then Popovich ahead of Kerr, the Rockets only have six fewer wins than the Warriors. Spurs only have five fewer wins than the Warriors. And Kevin Durant, I think, granted the ego management is important, and that's why Phil Jackson has 11 championships more than I think anything else. But the Warriors were supposed to be this good. The Spurs lost Tim Duncan. They were supposed to still be good. They still had good players, but I don't think they were supposed to be this good. And the Rockets definitely weren't supposed to be this good. And I think when the Spurs somehow managed to maintain their incredible level of play without their locker room leader and defensive leader, Duncan was still a great defensive player last year. And the fact that they've managed to keep it together, I think is incredibly impressive. The Rockets being anywhere near the third seed is basically, I mean, it's a combination of Daryl Morey getting perfect players in Ryan Anderson and Eric Gordon to fit that team and pairing Mike D'Antoni and James Harden seems like a win every time. But again, I think it's a lot harder to bring the Rockets from 41 and 41 to where they are now than to bring the Warriors from 73 wins last year to forty-one and seven, having replaced Harrison Barnes with Kevin Durant.
1: Yeah, those are all good points. I I think I place a higher value on the difficulty of managing those relationships and making sure that all of that is maintained, especially with their number of stars. And I respect that immensely. So that's probably what bumps Kerr over the top for me.
2: Yeah, for me it was. A, I mean, it was close between uh, for all top three for all three of my picks. But I just I had to go with. Um, pringles for number one just because of the fact that um it's just it's been incredible like i thought he was a after his stint in new york and then la like okay he's just too stubborn to make it work like his system won't work in the nba because they don't play defense and then he landed a good deal in houston and he got a phenomenal playmaker and player in james harden who is even though he's a shooting guard by nature, now plays point guard for them. And then you parent with Patrick Beverly, who's a great defensive player and knows his role and doesn't expect the ball in his hands and is just to go out and play defense and get under the skin of opposing point guards. Um, It's just, it's been a transformation for Houston. Like we talked earlier about how I have Harden as my MVP pick just because a lot of people weren't expecting this type of shift, at least from Houston when the season began. And maybe part of that is we should have maybe change our expectations a little bit, or maybe expected a bit more out of it, but it's just been awesome to watch what Houston's done so far. And real quick, Nick, to what you said about how he landed Harden, which is the perfect player for him. Steve Nash back in the day was pretty perfect in those uh D'Antoni systems in Phoenix. So, I mean, that was a player that was almost had a system that was handmade for him. So that's the only thing I got to say about that.
0: That's fair, and I guess Harden is more perfect for this Rockets team that doesn't really have a secondary scorer on the level that Amari Stoudemire was in Phoenix. But yeah, Steve Nash and Mike D'Antoni were incredible together. I didn't mean to denigrate that by any means. Really quickly, though, before we move on, can you still call him Pringles now that he's shaved the mustache? (laughs) Uh, It's just, I don't know, it's a nickname. I think that never
2: leaves. Um, As much as Kevin Durant wants to be called the servant by people. Back in the day, I'd still call him the Slim Reaper for every now and then. It's just a nickname that you just kind of look at and I'm like, yeah, that sticks. And Pringles just will always stay with me until he finally hangs it up. And even then, I'll still call him Pringles when he's not a coach. All
0: right, really quickly before we wrap up, let's just go through executive of the year. I'm willing to bet that we all have Bob Myers at number one. I think it's hard to not have him at number one when you turn Harrison Barnes and Andrew Bogut into Kevin Durant. Number two, I had Daryl Morey for a lot of the reasons that we've discussed in the Harden and Mike D'Antoni section. And then number three, I had Danny Ainge because he managed to add Al Horford and not give up on any of the incredible assets that he's sitting on. I think ranking him third might be harder next year if he still hasn't gotten anything out of that treasure trove of assets. But right now, I think you have to commend him for not throwing those away, and instead, you know, making sure that he gets the right deal out of those, while also getting the second best free agent.
2: Um, yeah, our list is almost identical for the most part. With I have Bob Myers at number one. With like you said, he flipped Harrison Barnes and Andrew and into uh, Kevin Durant, and at one point, at leading NBA All-Star vote getter in Zaza Pachulia. And then uh at second I have Daryl Moore because Daryl Morey because he's he's uh he's uh dedicated to a fault at times with his system and beliefs that it's layups, dunks or three pointers and the mid range shot is obsolete, but he's hand built a team that fits that mold completely and he found the coach that works for him. And then um but for my second spot too, I just wanna give like a quick shout out. Uh the ringer's already gone over this a lot, but when you look at Sam Hankey out there and uh, with his super long resignation letter and everything else, just the way Joel Embiid and the fact that the process has finally paid off, the fact that all this young talent is coming together for Philadelphia and they actually matched their win total all of last year in the month of January alone, um, it's just been great for him. And then to round it out, like you said, I have Danny Ainge at third, and he has a treasure trove of assets, and he could definitely dip out of it if he doesn't do anything with it. And it's just... You always want to wait and see what Boston's going to do, because they can definitely make the push to land a marquee player with all these assets that could help put them in the running with Cleveland, at least in the Eastern Conference.
1: So I've got some differences. I do have Bob Myers first. You signed Kevin Durant, former MVP. You win this award. It's that simple. Uh, second, I have Sam Presti. If we're looking at this lead year, you'll notice the Ibaka trade looks like a bit of a heist at this point. They've been rebuilding after Kevin Durant and are still almost guaranteed to make the playoffs at this point. The Thunder are going strong. They haven't really given up any future assets. I think Sam Presti has done a very impressive job, especially with making moves before the writing is on the wall. Uh, Maybe that backfires a little bit with James Harden, but since then, very, very strong track record, particularly this year. And finally, I have John Hammond in Milwaukee gets a shout out for me. Uh, the draft pick of Malcolm Brogdon, who's looked excellent, signing Vadova with a bit of a fiery, more veteran presence coming off the bench or starting, be it as it may, week to week. His vision is finally coming together of the switching, long-armed athletic defense he's maintained a little bit more control over Jason Kidd, who hasn't really popped up in the news for any difficulties or stories this year. And this is a team that's on the rise that's had a couple of amazing games against Cleveland already this year and could really make the playoffs exciting if a couple things break their way.
0: It's interesting because I hadn't, I don't think, really properly considered Sam Presti because the big story of their offseason was Kevin Durant leaving. But Presti didn't really have much control over that, and the Ibaka trade is its own separate animal, but Victor Oladipo, I think, is already better than Ibaka, and he's younger, and they also got Demonte Sabonis, who has started every single game for them as a rookie. So, actually, now that I think about it, I might put Presti in over Danny Ainge in the three spot, because Ainge did get Al Horford, but other than that, didn't really do all that much, and Jalen Brown isn't looking great right now as the number three overall pick. I think maybe he could have moved that asset before they picked someone. It might have been more valuable than it is now. And Presti was dealt a tough hand of cards, and I think he did a really good job with it.
1: Yeah, one of us finally convinced uh, somebody else to move on one of these decisions. Maybe (laughs) (laughs) a lesson to be learned there.
0: (laughs) Well, what can I say? Got to be flexible. All right. Anything else you guys want to talk about before we wrap this up? I think I'm good. Uh, I think I've uh, probably ruffled a
2: few feathers with some of my picks, so it won't be interesting to see what people think after they listen to this. So I'll save save face and keep my mouth shut.
0: (laughs) All right, that's certainly one way to do it. Well, thanks again to J.C. Fisher and Evan Damrell for coming on the podcast. You can follow J.C. on Twitter at V-J-C-F-I-S-C-H-E-R. You can follow Evan at m Evan A-M-N-O-T-E-V-A-N. You can follow me on Twitter at N-B-A underscore Johnson. You can also follow us on the hashtag basketball website, hashtag basketball.com, and at hash basketball on twitter if you have any questions or comments or concerns please feel free to reach out to me on twitter i'd love to hear from you and thanks so much for listening